As you're taking your seats, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 25. Well, I, I think we're all very aware that there are certain reactions that we all possess that are almost expected or almost normal. Um, think of reflexes or responses that are practically involuntary. They just seem to happen. You can't really control them. You know, you jump when somebody scares you or when somebody throws something at you when you're not expecting, you instantly throw your hands up in front of your face or you duck. And if you don't, you end up going viral on YouTube. It's really the rare occasions where you don't react the way you normally do. There are certain things that are just so ingrained in us. They're a part of who we are. In the Christian life, I think there's some similar parallels. You know, we may be tempted to respond to our circumstances in certain ways that seem almost involuntary. They just kind of happen. You know, all of a sudden, circumstances are outside of our control. Things get chaotic in our lives. They're not what we plan. And so our instinctual reaction tends to be, in the human sense, tends to be towards maybe fear. Maybe our, our natural response is towards anxiety and worry. Maybe there's a sense of defensiveness that kicks into our hearts, instantly feeling like we're up against the wall. We feel attacked. We feel injustice of some sort. Maybe because of the way life circumstances are turning out, there's a default setting in our hearts where we instantly feel like nobody cares about us, like nobody loves us, like we're all absolutely and completely alone. I think many of these things are default settings that are embedded in our sinful human nature. They're just a part of who we are and we don't think about them, they just naturally happen. But I wanna to suggest to you this morning that it is possible to defy the expectations of what is normal, especially, especially when we have a deep and abiding faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the things that God is wanting to do in the hearts of every follower of Jesus Christ is to take what was typically normal in our sinful flesh and behavior and to readjust and reorient that and to produce in us a new sort of normal response to the circumstances of life. I find it fascinating as we go through the book of Acts and we kind of round off the ministry of the Apostle Paul, we get to the end of this ministry, there's a lot of repetition that's taking place. But it's interesting, we can almost, because it's been so long looking at the life of Paul and we're kind of moving through it somewhat slowly, we can almost forget, we can be removed from what's really been taking place in his life and really how devastating the circumstances truly are. I mean, Paul has gone through so much to get to the place he's at right now. In living a life faithfully for Jesus Christ, it's cost him dearly. I mean, he has been mocked, he's been abused, he's been wrongfully accused, he's been arrested, there's been a plot against his very life. I mean, countless times Paul has stood the test of his faith and he has passed in incredible ways. And we can almost forget that and see this as being normal Paul. But the circumstances are completely abnormal. They're completely unnatural. I mean, he's on trial unjustly for his faith. His life is being threatened. And yet, what's so staggering to me is that what we see typically, just time and time again, excuse me, in the life of Paul, is not this kind of reaction in his sinful flesh. It is a godly, spirit-filled reaction and response that honors the Lord. See, how does Paul do this? 
How does he face what most of us, look, let's be honest, if we were injected into this story, if this was us living the life that Paul is living, most of us would default to incredible amounts of fear, anxiety, worry, and we would have given up a long time ago. How does Paul do this? I think the simple answer is that Paul has an understanding of the unwavering control of God in every one of his circumstances. He, he just so deeply believes that God is sovereign and in control, and there's nothing that can shake that. I mean, God holds him and the universe, everything that happens in his life, in the palm of his hands. And Paul is unshakable in that conviction. And so as he looks at the changing circumstances of his life and the challenging circumstances of his life, he leans even more so into the unchanging and unwavering God that he serves. You know, one of the ways I think Paul understands the unwavering control of God is is seen primarily, listen, in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want you to see this morning, I want to submit to you that one of the primary ways we can know and experience and grow in our understanding of the unwavering control of God in our lives is simply through our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Paul sees all of his life as being framed by his relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the anchor for his soul. It is a constant reminder, this relationship with Jesus, who he knows Jesus to be, who Jesus has proved himself to be time and time again in his life. It's a constant demonstration that God is unwavering in his control. And I trust this morning as we look at this together that these truths will hit your heart. Perhaps you've walked in here with circumstances that are beyond your control, and you know it. Perhaps you're going to struggle with some of the things that maybe Paul might have been tempted to struggle with. Maybe you're suffering this morning in great ways because of your circumstances, and this morning my hope and my prayer is that you will see in your relationship with Jesus the unwavering control of God in your life, and that your heart will be greatly comforted and that by the grace of God, you and I will be built up in the faith together this morning. I want to begin by looking at this, this unwavering control of God at, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 25. Follow along with me as I read the first five verses. Luke writes these words. He says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning on ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning. When I feel attacked, Christ is my protector. When I feel attacked, Christ is my protector. And every one of us at times in our life have felt attacked. We've felt like our back is up against the wall. We felt like we're continually getting pounded by the waves of life, maybe the assault of the enemy of our soul, Satan himself. And one of the things that needs to anchor us and helps us see the unwavering control of God is by understanding this profound truth. Listen, Christ is my protector. Christ is my protector. Paul has experienced this time and time again, and in this case here is no exception. Festus is the the governor. He's a newly installed governor. He arrives in the province. 
he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. Again, this is no different than it's been as we've marched through the book of Acts. Paul is under attack all the time. They just continue to assault him because he's taken a stand for Jesus Christ. And the attack is very clear. Listen, the, the Jews here are trying to persuade Festus. They've got this plan that they've concocted. We know from previous chapters that the Jews want Paul dead. They don't just want him in prison. They want him dead and gone. They want him done away with. They can't put up with him any longer. Some of them have taken a vow, a fast, so that until Paul is dead, they will not eat. And so they try to persuade Festus to bring Paul back. Let's try him back in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, on the way, they've got this plot plan to ambush Paul and to murder him in cold blood. I mean, we can't blame Paul, could we, if he was tempted to feel like his life was just one assault after another, like he was constantly under attack, and we couldn't fault him in a human sense in kind of living this life of wanting to lash out and constantly protect himself, and yet what we see Paul doing is responding in the opposite way. He is constantly trusting the Lord because he realizes that Christ is his protector, these Jews are relentless. The, the, the Greek in this text implies or suggests that there is an ongoing request. They are so relentless, and it, it suggests that they're pressuring Festus. They, they don't want anything but their answer. Festus apparently prefers to con- conduct most of his business in Caesarea, particularly in cases that could be longer and drawn out. So he tells the Jews, listen, I'm not going back to Jerusalem, much to their chagrin. Come on back with me, and I'll try their case properly. And so the natural question as we kind of read through this is this, did Festus know about the Jews' plot to murder Paul? Was he intentionally trying to protect Paul? It's possible that he did, but the text give us no, gives us no reason to believe that Festus actually knew of the plot. Really, we don't know what he knew, but here's what we can be sure of. However much he knew, God was in complete control, and God was continuing to protect his servant. That's what's happening here. So whether he knew of the plot or not, God was providentially making sure that Paul would be protected because God had a plan for Paul, and it was not to go back to Jerusalem to be killed. It reminded me, as you think of Paul, this is the typical way God often deals with his servants all throughout the scripture. Paul's not the first servant of God to be attacked, right? He's not the first servant of God to be attacked for standing up for what is right and true and pleasing to the Lord. This seems to be the typical way things unfold throughout the scriptures. My mind was drawn to Joseph, for example. Did you know that that Joseph is one of the only figures in the entire Bible who has virtually nothing negative said about him at all? And yet when you read the story, and I think that's important for the story because when you think about the story of Joseph, I mean, here's a guy who was relentlessly attacked in the most horrendous ways. He was betrayed by his own family who wanted to kill him. They threw him down into a pit and eventually the brothers were persuaded to simply pull him out and to sell him off to Egypt in slavery. When he gets to Egypt and things go kind of from bad to worse, if you can get worse than your own family trying to murder you, as things unfold, he, he ends up finding himself in prison. And you remember the story of being in prison where he rose up the ranks, but as he's sitting in prison, the cupbearer of the king and the baker of the king, they come, they have these, these crazy dreams that Daniel, by God and his grace, is given the opportunity to interpret for them. 
He says the baker is going to lose his life, but the cupbearer is going to be set free. And he looks at the cupbearer in the eyes and says, listen, when you go and you stand before the Pharaoh, when you've been set free, would you remember me here? And would you come back for me? And the cupbearer promises to come and save Joseph. And then remember what happens? The cupbearer utterly forgets about him. He knew what it was to be falsely accused. That's how he ended up in prison in the, fa- in the first place. To be hated, to be slandered. To be thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. To be utterly forgotten. You know, it's in times like this that you've got to wonder, like, how did these individuals not become bitter towards other human beings in their circumstances, and in particular toward God? And you know, the reality is a lot of people do. A lot of people, when things aren't going their way and their circumstances are collapsing all around them, they have the tendency to become incredibly angry toward those in their life, and they become very angry toward God himself. One of the things we learn from Joseph is instead of getting angry and bitter toward God and toward man, instead, he keeps a heavenly focus. And you remember, near the end of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 50, verse 20, he looks at his brother's And where he should have been angry, and how dare you, I can't believe what you did to me, he looks at them and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. If that's not a statement about trusting in the unwavering control of God, I don't know what is, amen? I mean, he can look at everything he'd gone through in life, and he can step back and say, listen, I don't fault you because I see the hand of God in this. God is the one who's brought this all about, and I trust in his control over my life and over my circumstances completely. I can't imagine Joseph sitting in the prison waiting for that cupbearer to come. You know, what was he doing? Was he scratching lines in the wall every passing day? Was he thinking about it every hour of every day as every week began to go by and then month and then year as he sat there all by himself? How did he make sense of all of this? The simple answer is this. He clung to the promise of God. How long can can someone cling to a promise? Here's my answer for you this morning. As long as you hang on for Jesus Christ for dear life, that's how long. You and I, listen, circumstances in life are not going to go our way. We're going to often feel attacked. We're going to often feel the assault of the enemy. And it is imperative that we learn to cling with all of our might, with all the strength we can muster. And by the grace of God, we cling to Jesus I think of the way Paul frames this in Colossians 3, verse 1 through 3. This is exactly what he's saying. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, cling to Christ. Cling to the heavenly things. Cling to where Christ is. Don't cling to the things of the earth. They're not going to help you in your time of desperation, in your time of need. They will fail you every time. But Christ is your protector. Lean into the one who cares for your soul. The scriptures say so much about our relationship with Jesus. The phrase in Christ is used more often as a descriptor. I was reminded of this this morning. A descriptor of Christians more more than any other term in all of the New Testament. In Christ is the definitive statement about our identity as followers of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. We are hidden in him. You have to see in this a picture of protection and covering over your soul and over your life. And that means this, that you, if you're in Christ this morning, you are safe and secure. 
You have God's approval and you have God's acceptance. You know true life and you have experienced the true love of God through the cross of Christ. What a much needed reminder to listen that Christ is our protector, amen? And Paul knew that. Whatever he faced, I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt because he wrote so much of it in the New Testament that he saw his life as being protected in Christ. Secondly, note this. You want to see the unwavering control of God? When I feel afraid, Christ is my peace. Christ is my peace. Verse 6 says that after he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. There's the heart of this problem right here. They are bringing many and serious charges against Paul. Remember what they are. Look at verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So they're bringing all these crazy charges against Paul. We've seen this, right? This, this has been nothing out of the ordinary here. They accuse Paul of violating the very law of God. He's violated the Torah. He, he's disrespecting it. He doesn't practice what Moses has had handed down to us. And Paul has proved himself beyond a shadow of a doubt to, for that not to be the case. They bring charges that he had somehow violated the temple. Remember that they had said that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple courts and violated the temple. Utterly untrue. It was fabricated. It was false. And then at a last-ditch effort in an attempt to kind of leapfrog the Jewish system, they go right to Rome to what, most, to what they would care most about, and they say simply this, that he has made claims against Caesar and he's committed a great offense against the Romans. In other words, this guy is going to stir up riots and he's going to be a huge problem for you. He's a plague to society and you would do well to get rid of him while you can. And the problem with all of these many and serious charges is that they cannot prove any of them. Verse 9, but Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. I begin to wonder as I read this, why won't, Paul, why won't they, anybody do Paul a favor? This poor guy. Festus wants to curry favor with the Jews. He wants to kind of make sure that nothing's, you know, nothing upsets the apple cart here. So it says, Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul's no fool, right? Paul understands that the moment he's marching back to Jerusalem, there's an ambush waiting for him. He's already been informed about the ambush by his nephew the first time around. He's not a fool. He knows that they're after his life. He knows there's no fair trial to be had in Jerusalem. It's at this point, you might think that Paul would have just reason to be a little bit afraid, right? At least a temptation to be afraid because he's seeing the tides are turning against him. I mean, Festus is, is really wanting to please the Jewish people. He's not interested in my case. He's not that interested in justice. I mean, he's suggesting now that I should go back to Jerusalem. I, I maybe should be fearful of my life here. And yet, I want you to see just the, the, the kind of peace that Paul exhibits in his response. It's remarkable. It's like Paul is unwavering. He's unfazed by this. He simply just trusts in the sovereign control of God. Verse 10 says, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. It's pretty matter-of-factly. 
To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. This is the problem. Every time he gets tried, every time he makes a defense, they come up with the same answer. Yeah, you're right. You really shouldn't be on trial. Verse 11, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Listen, that's a statement of of trust in the Lord, no fear. I'm, I'm not afraid to die if I've done something wrong, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Such peace in these statements rightly defending himself with the truth. He understands Roman law. He sees the tides turning against him, and he sees, listen, that he might not get out of here with his life if he doesn't take drastic measures, and so he does. The only thing left to be done from his vantage point is he appeals to Caesar. And in a Roman court of law, the moment somebody appeals to Caesar, that takes it to a whole new level. I mean, he wants to take this to the supreme court of the land. He wants to take it to the highest court possible. Verse 12 says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Again, just put yourself in Paul's sandals for a minute. He's constantly being assaulted, constantly being attacked. His life is continually being threatened. And yet he's so peaceful about everything. He seems to be unwavering. You know, I think when we are wrongly accused, slandered, or treated harshly, we need to remember what I believe Paul remembers here, that Christ is his peace. Paul doesn't need to lash out. Paul doesn't need to get his back up against the wall. Paul has no reason to fear because he knows Jesus Christ, the judge of all humanity. He knows he's going to stand before the one who will judge the ones who are trying to wrongly judge him. He knows that Jesus Christ, the one whom he has submitted his life to, will hold all men accountable for every thought, for every action, for every deed, for every word spoken. Everybody will stand before him. And Paul knows one thing. He knows that he is in Christ. And he knows that he is at peace with Christ. And so regardless of who he stands before on this planet, he has nothing to fear. I think this is really, really instructive for our hearts. You see, rather than becoming bitter or giving up hope, like we might be inclined to do in this life when things don't go the way we anticipate, we need to recognize the futility and the temporality of our opponent's efforts against us. And let me just kind of frame, some of you are like, let me just say that again, we need to recognize the futility and the temporality of our opponent's efforts against us. Listen, any human uh, opponent that comes against you, especially when you take a stand for Jesus Christ, he is limited in his power and his ability. He can do harm to your body, but he cannot do any harm to your soul. The attacks are temporary in nature. You may suffer for a little while, afflictions for standing for Jesus here and now, but there is coming a day that will last for eternity where there will be no more accuser of your soul, where there will be nothing to fear for all eternity. Isn't that awesome news? 
You say, I don't have any human people attacking me. Listen, every day, if this is helpful for you, because I understand, you know, we may not be attacked for our faith, and we may not be attacked in our life circumstances by another human being, but everyone, if you're in Christ, and even if you're not, you need to understand something very important. Every day you walk outside, every day you wake up and take a breath, you're walking into a war. There is a spiritual battle taking place. There is an enemy of your soul who wants to attack you and to take you down, who wants to cripple you and render you useless and effective. He wants to destroy your faith every single day of your life. And the good news is, is that when it comes to Satan, the enemy of our soul and the demonic who follow him, their day is coming to an end too. Their attempts are futile in the long run. They have been stripped of their power and their weaponry. In Jesus Christ, there is no more power that Satan holds over us, not in the great sense of that word. I love the words of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. He said this, listen, we ought never to fear those who are defending the wrong side. For since God is not with them, their wisdom is folly, their strength is weakness, and their glory is their shame. Look, there is great power in understanding, church, that we fight on the right side of this battle. Though Paul is appealing to Caesar here, I want you to see this. Some people think, well, Paul is making a mistake. He's he's putting his hope in the judicial system. He's putting his hope in Caesar as a man to liberate him. Paul doesn't care. He's already made this clear. He doesn't care whether he lives or dies. Paul is not placing his hope in Caesar. He has placed it squarely in Jesus Christ. You see, it was Jesus who told him, remember in Acts chapter 23, that just in the same way that he has testified in Jerusalem about Jesus, so too he must go to Rome and testify. He knows this, and he knows that the fastest way to get himself to where God has called him to be is to appeal to Caesar. You know, God's sovereignty is not removed from human responsibility. There is no let go and let God approach to the Christian life, okay? Paul understood in taking this stance and wanting to stand before Caesar that ultimately he was bringing about the plan of God to get him exactly where God promised to get him. There's a great sense in which Paul had incredible peace in this circumstance, and I want to encourage you this morning to have peace in your circumstances, but you need to know how this happens in the Christian life. You see, God promises us two kinds of peace, and the first one is critically important for the second one to be a reality in your life. Every Christian is offered, every person, excuse me, is offered the opportunity to have objective peace, objective peace with God. You see, the fundamental problem with humanity is that apart from Jesus Christ, as we're in our sins, we're actually at war with God. We stand in rebellion to God's king, kingship and lordship over our lives. This is, this is our problem. So this war means this. There is no peace between us and God. In fact, the scriptures say that there is enmity between us and God. We are rebels reacting against him. This is what sin has done to humanity. All of humanity sits in this same place and what they desperately need is to be brought back into a right relationship with God. We need to take that enmity, it needs to be dealt with completely and we need to have peace with God. Now the only way that can happen is in and through Jesus Christ. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter five, verse one. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, faith in Christ actually brings about peace with God. Here's why, because we look at the cross and here's what we believe happened, right? This is what the Bible teaches. God took all of our sin and he paid for it all on Jesus Christ. Jesus took all the blame, all of the penalty on himself and therefore God's anger and his wrath was completely assuaged. It was taken care of, therefore, listen, creating an opportunity for us to be at peace with God. There's now nothing that separates us. We're justified. Peace with God. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is making peace by the blood of the cross, reconciling all things to himself. This is the plan of God. Now, listen, here's why this is important. Because God's objective peace is intended to lead us towards the experiential subjective peace in our daily lives. But, but you can't have the subjective peace, not in the truest sense, you can't have the subjective peace that God wants you to know and experience in your life without first experiencing the objective peace by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it's there that our subjective peace actually begins, because just here, let me just put this into a, a scenario for you, because as, as life maybe is tumbling out of control, as, you're th- as things are falling apart, as you're beginning to feel that uneasiness, the anxiety, the fear is creeping in, you don't know what's happening, it's all out of control in your life. Listen, what you need to do is run back to the cross and be reminded that there God made peace with you. Here's why this is important, listen. Because at the cross, God took care of your greatest problem. Do you see that? He created, or excuse me, he took care of the greatest chaos that could ever exist in your life. A a enmity between him and you. The greatest problem that you could ever have was taken care of, and God brought peace out of the chaos of your life. Listen, that means this. Just follow the logic here. That means all of the lesser problems you experience in your life. Listen, listen, if God took care of the greater thing, what can he do with the lesser? He's got it. He's got it all. If God brought peace where there was the greatest amount of chaos in your life, listen, the little things that are causing you a lack of peace and turmoil in your life, listen, God can take those things and he can do abundantly more than you can ask or think. He can bring peace out of the chaos in your life. It's not a problem for him. In fact, listen to what scripture says. I love what Jesus has told to his disciples when, when their life was being flipped upside down, Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, look guys, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you right now. And, and all of them, just imagine the fear that was beginning to creep into their hearts. What are we gonna do without Jesus? In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus looks at his disciples and just listen to the, the love infused in this statement. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He says, look, I can give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's so much greater than the kind of peace that the world wants to offer you. I don't offer you a temporary peace. I don't offer you a partial peace. I offer you a a whole, a complete, and a permanent peace. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, verse 6, he said, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You say, how come I don't feel peace in my life? How come I struggle? I know Jesus Christ. I get the objective peace. Listen, the first thing is that you're not running back to that objective peace enough. You're not running there to see that God's got this. God's in complete control. God is taking care of your soul. He can take care of your daily problems. But there are some legitimate reasons why you might not be experiencing the subjective peace in your life that God wants you to experience in Jesus Christ. And I think Paul, he has such peace in his life because he knows 
how that subjective peace comes about. He knows that to set the mind on the flesh, the things of this world, it doesn't bring peace. And if you're running, listen, to the world to give peace that only God can give, if you're running to sinful pleasures and sinful endeavors, you just need to understand something that God is trying to make very clear that's only gonna lead to more chaos. The answer to the lack of peace in your life is to run to him, set your mind on the things of the spirit, right? Get, get the mind of the spirit into your mind. How do you do that? Where, where do you find that, you ask? Simple, right? It's right here, the mind of the spirit laid out for us. We have the mind of Christ. I think one of the antidotes for experiencing chaos in our lives and a lack of peace is simply to obey God with a clear conscience. Here's two questions you can ask as you're wrestling through this in your own life. You want to have the peace, listen, instead of the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that so often is present in our souls and our hearts, here's the first question. Do my decisions reflect that Jesus is my Lord and my master? As you're going about your life, just simply ask yourself that question. Is this decision, is this choice, is this path, does it reflect that Jesus Christ really is my Lord and my master? Is it submitted to him entirely? Am I doing it for his glory or for my glory? Ask this question next. Will my decision perpetuate peace in my relationship with God or, or will it destroy peace in my relationship with God? And you can be sure, if you're choosing a sinful path, God does not want you to experience peace. He wants that peace to flow from a heart that is subjected to him. And the greatest peace of all comes from a life that is submitted to the unwavering control of God. Two of my favorite verses, Psalm 56 verse 3 says this, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I love that. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Isaiah 26, verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Listen, this side of the cross, you cannot trust God without trusting Jesus Christ. Christ is my peace. Thirdly, when I feel anxious, Christ is my provision. When I feel anxious, Christ is my provision. Paul now has the opportunity to stand before another individual. It says in verse 13, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make the defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day, my seat on the tribunal, I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and, he tried, and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. 
Festus is, is incredibly confused by this entire situation. He's trying to process why Paul is actually on trial. He, he doesn't get the charges. He sees that the, the case against Paul is weak and actually it's non-existent. So what he does is he, he calls in some of those who might have some more knowledge and understanding. He seeks the help and advice from two important people who have a good grasp of the Jewish faith, and that is uh, Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Now, here's what you need to know about Agrippa. Agrippa II, he didn't rule over Judea, but he had been appointed by Claudius as the curator of the temple. In other words, he had some uh, authority over the religious institution, especially over the Jewish religious institution. For example, he could actually remove a high priest from power and impose his own high priest. That's a great degree of power over the Jewish faith. He was actually part Jewish himself, Rome saw him as an authority on the Jewish religion. In fact, Paul references this. Just look across the page to chapter 26, verse 3. Paul is going to get a chance to defend himself, but listen to what he says to Agrippa in verse 3. He says, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. In other words, Paul says, look, I know that you're very well acquainted with the Jewish faith. You know not only the faith, you know the controversies, you know all the customs. You're well versed in this, so maybe you can help me out here. Now, Festus had heard the case against Paul, and he, he tells Agrippa that it wasn't what he supposed. It's not what he expected, but it's interesting to me that he does have the ability to kind of zero in. You know, what he's talking about, he says, I need some help investigating this. I need your help trying to figure out what's really going on. But he has zeroed in, hasn't he, on the crucial issue at stake when it comes to the Apostle Paul and what he's been saying. He, you'll notice in verse 19, he says that they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. He said, really, it comes down to this, Agrippa. I mean, there's this guy named Jesus. We all know that he died, but Paul's actually going around saying that he's really alive. Can you see the, the emphasis, listen, of the resurrection in the teaching of the Apostle Paul? It's so hard to miss that here. What's particularly staggering, I think, when we look at the situation and we hear him laying out the non-case against Paul, isn't this, isn't this unbelievable? Right? These officials who are supposed to be executing the Roman law are repeatedly saying, we have no reason to try this guy. He's innocent. There's no guilt to be found in him. And they still won't let him go. It's so confusing and you have to think, if you're Paul and you keep going through these mock trials, you keep defending yourself and saying, where's the proof? Where's the proof? Where's the proof? Here's the real case. Here's what's really going on. And everybody says, yeah, yeah, I think he's got a point. Eventually, you hope like, okay, can I get out of here? And when they keep saying no, you're like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Any one of us who are in his shoes, I think we'd be incredibly confused, wouldn't we? You know, life can be like that. And I think it's often, isn't it, that the confusion in life often produces the greatest amount of anxiety in our hearts. It's the unknowns, the unanswered questions, 
That's why, listen, I think we can relate to this. Think, think of like medical problems that we face. I mean, the, the anxiety creeps up, not when we know what's happening, but when we don't know, when we're waiting on test results, when the doctors can't figure out what's going on, right? all of a sudden our mind starts going off in a, in a hundred different directions. And we get ourselves worked up into what it might be. And what if this? And what if that? Like, can I just be honest with you? We just, we just went through this with my, my sister-in-law, Jess. I, I've shared with you guys and I shared with you all the hard stuff, and I think it's only fair to share some of the good stuff. Um, my sister Jess was in the hospital for a few weeks, and again, this kind of situation, they couldn't figure out what was going on, but um, by God's grace, I'm thankful to be able to tell you, and just first of all, can I just say thank you for the way you have prayed and cared and just been the body of Christ to my sister-in-law. It, it has meant so much to us and to them, and um, can, I, can I just encourage you, yesterday, uh, they were released from the hospital, and they're now at home and she's recovering. Yeah, praise the Lord. And she's recovering and looks, looks so good, and we're just so thankful. Uh, can, I, can I just encourage you? Your prayers worked. They worked. You who gathered, you who prayed, I mean, I heard constant reports. I'm praying every day, or I prayed for your sister-in-law. Your prayers worked. God heard your prayers. God answered your prayers. You need to believe that. It wasn't just all of a sudden the doctors figured it out. God worked through your prayers, and this needs to be a sweet example to us of what it means to be the body of Christ for one another. But you know, in the moment, can I be honest with you, in the moment when, when everything was going on, one, one of the most, conf- it was so confusing. We couldn't figure out what was going on. Her body wasn't responding. She was in so much pain. And we're sitting there wanting to pull our hair out going, what's happening? And all of the questions, all of the confusion, if I'm honest, it produced at times a lot of anxiety. And we were reminded, listen, we were reminded, listen, isn't it true that all the anxiety in our hearts is a result of the fact that we're not actually in control? And all anxiety is alleviated when we turn and submit to the one who is in complete control. And Paul, I think he understood this in his life. He could have been confused. He could have been anxious about what was going on. He could have been asking the questions. But I think Paul, he just hammers the gospel so hard it needs to teach us something. Listen, when we rightly understand the gospel, and particularly when we rightly understand the resurrection, we're reminded that the very doctrine of the resurrection argues that there is more to life than life. And listen, let me just explain why this is so helpful. There's more to life than just life. In other words, God is so much more than this life here. God has everything in control. You want to know what the resurrection reminds us of? The resurrection of Jesus Christ reminds us that there is a future day coming that we have already been told about. We've been promised that we who are in Christ will be raised back to life in the last day. Like there's a day coming where that promise will be made a reality and it reminds us that everything we go through in this life is so small in comparison to what awaits us down the road for all of eternity. And what a settling reminder in our hearts that we don't need to be anxious about the things in this world. God has it in complete control. And when I feel anxious, I need to go back to the gospel and see that Christ is my provision. Jesus is everything I need. The gospel is actually the greatest reminder that God is in control. Make no mistake about that. The gospel reminds us, listen, that there was a massive problem and God wanted to restore things back to the way they were and even better. And the only way to do that is if he planned this redemption and at the very center of it all is Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ. God has taken care of the most catastrophic problem that man has ever known, sin and death. Paul knew that he could face whatever came at him because he had Christ, and in having Christ, he had already God's greatest provision. 
Can I just tell you this? Listen, even if in our situation and in your situation, whatever you may be going through, even if God doesn't answer the way we wanted him to, and he did, praise the Lord, he, you know, my, my sister-in-law is on the mend, even if he didn't give us exactly what we were asking for, we would still stand here and praise him, believing that he was in absolute unwavering control of everything. Loved ones, listen, God has made provision for your greatest need. You already have everything you need for your soul. And if he did that for you, what else might he provide for you in Christ? Paul writes in Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, that we are not to be anxious about anything. Listen, this comes right under, listen, comes right under the idea of God's unwavering control, and it's all through Christ. Watch this. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Look at that. Do you see that there? In Christ Jesus. Can't escape it. The antidote for your anxious heart is faith in Jesus Christ expressed through humble, dependent prayer to God through Christ. Giving up that control. Some of you in here are so anxious, it's crippling you, it's killing you, and you're turning to all kinds of things to try and resolve the problems. And God is saying, don't you understand? I'm the provision for your anxious soul. I want Jesus to be what you need. Nothing else because nothing else will do. Finally, listen, when I feel alone, Christ is my portion. When I feel alone, Christ is my portion. It's such a sweet reminder that Christ is our provision, but again, throwing ourselves into the story, I want you to see how alone Paul might have been tempted to feel. Look at verse 23. He says, on, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer? But I have found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing to, or definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. I mean, do you get the picture here? He's like, okay, uh, I've examined him. Uh, he's innocent, but he appealed to Caesar. So I don't know what to tell Caesar. How about you just let him go? Is that a good answer? But that's not God's plan. And so he appeals, he pulls this appeal to Caesar, and then he says, I've gathered you all here to help me figure out what, what kind of charges we got to level at him. Like, what are we going to tell Caesar about why we're sending this guy to him? This is a big deal. Festus has no clue. 
And, and I just want you to see here what's happening. I want you to notice how the, the, the pic- picture is being painted, right? Do you, can you get the picture, right? The, the pomp and the circumstance. Look at verse 23. They came with great pomp. I mean, they, they roll out the red carpet. Here comes King Agrippa and his sister, Queen Bernice. I mean, all of a sudden, like, everybody stands to their feet, and all around them are the, the elite of the society and the Roman world who runs the world. You know, they walk in, and the, you know, confetti cannons are going off like, crazy, this big deal, light show and everything, right? Music, trumpets playing. I made a lot of that up, but it's possible, okay? (laughs) Barring the confetti cannons, I'm pretty sure they didn't have those. But it's this big charade. It's this massive ordeal. I mean, they, they got the military commanders of the five cohorts. These are the most powerful military men. They've got all the most prominent men in the city. They're, they're situated in this audience hall, which is the former palace of Herod. It's beautiful. It's ornate. It's a huge deal. And then he brings up the reality that all the Jews in the world have petitioned me to put this guy to death. And what you need to see is that this scene is intended to paint a picture in which all of a sudden, all eyes will now be on Paul. Paul enters the audience hall in this massive crowd of all the most important people on the face of the earth at the time. And he stands out with impressive simplicity. He stands as a prisoner who's been wrongly condemned. He stands before these great representatives of the world and he stands, here's what you need to see, he stands all alone. It's intended to produce this sort of contrast where, where it's, it's, like, it's like this. The whole world is standing against little Paul, all of the elite of the world, all of the wise and the mighty of the world. And then here's little, meek, meager Paul who's a nobody taking a stand for Jesus Christ. It's a fascinating picture. You know, I think it's really important because in one sense it really depicts what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because to be a follower of Jesus Christ often is to put ourselves in a position where we are standing before the elite of the world, those who who have the most power, the most prestige, and we, like Paul, are often paraded out in front of them like a spectacle, wrongly accused, laughed at, mocked, belittled, thought little of. You know, the world looks at what we believe. You understand this, right? The world looks at what we believe and says, what you believe is stupid. You are fools if you believe that. You're giving your life to that? That's pathetic. Look what you've given up. I I can't help but think that Paul, you know, he drew a lot of comfort in this moment, in this place where he was maybe tempted to feel alone. Maybe he drew comfort from remembering that Jesus Christ himself stood in the very same position. Luke records it in his gospel where Jesus was paraded out. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was wrongly accused. Jesus was condemned by the crowds. Jesus stood before Pilate and and the, the elite of the culture. Maybe in that moment, Paul was reminded that though the world stands against him, though the world, listen, though the world that seems, and maybe they do in the human sense, they have everything you could ever want. They have all the power, they have all the prestige, they've got all the possessions, they've got everything from a human perspective, but the one thing they don't have is the one thing they desperately need, and that's the one thing Paul stands to declare, that he has Jesus. 
I think of the words of Psalm 73. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, when you feel alone, it's important to remember that you're never standing alone for Jesus. Whatever you face in this life where you're inclined to feel alone like nobody understands, you have one who stands with you, you have Jesus. And when you're inclined to be tempted to give up on that hope and to lean towards something else and to rely on something else to fill that gap and that void of loneliness in your heart, you need to simply cry out and say, God, just give me Jesus. Our hearts really do, don't they? It's it's sad to say this, but it's a reality of our fallen condition. Our hearts really do long for other things to fill the void that only Jesus can fill. And we need to be reminded that in God's grace, He calls us to turn our face to Jesus, to see that He is our portion, that He's all I need, and it needs to become the cry of our heart. If you're in Christ this morning, listen, it needs to become the cry of your heart. God, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus every day when you're tempted to fall away. Give me more of Jesus. And it reminded me, it reminded me this week of a song that I love. It's one of my favorite songs. It's so beautiful. It's so simple. It's so clear. It's called Give Me Jesus. And I asked if Mark would come on up and sing it over us. And as he does that, I just want to encourage you, listen, could you, could you just pay attention to the lyrics? They are, they're so simple. And I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're wrestling through. I don't know how maybe alone you feel, how much you've struggled just in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But my prayer is that this morning you've had your eyes fixed on Jesus and you see that he has everything you need. And so as Mark and Jen just sing this over us, Can I just ask you, just consider the lyrics. Just really let them sink deeply into your heart. And ask God to remind you that you have been given everything you need. Jesus is indeed your portion this morning. In the morning when I rise In the morning when I rise in the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you Give me Jesus 
stands with all the world against him. He stands to them. He stands alone. He sees them and he sees all of their power. He sees all of their prestige. He knows all of their possessions. He knows the lives that they have lived in one sense for the things of this world. And he essentially is standing there and looking at them and saying, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. You know, in the end, all of those who stand in rebellion and rejection of Jesus Christ will have to stand before Jesus themselves. And they'll stand before Jesus, the Lord of all, and they'll stand with all of their possessions stripped away. They'll stand with all of the things they put their hope in in this life, their power, their authority, their position. They'll stand with everything, all of it stripped away. They'll stand naked, and they will stand alone, and they will stand wishing, listen, they will stand wishing that all they had was Jesus. And I need to ask you this morning, if you don't have Jesus this morning, you need him desperately. It doesn't matter what you have, it doesn't matter what you pursue in this life. Listen, what you need is peace between you and God. You desperately need God to redeem your soul. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And today I want to ask you, listen, if God is working on your heart, this is the day, this is the time, this is right now. Today is the day of your salvation. You need to get low before the King of Kings and you need to allow all of the things that you have been trusting in, all the things you have turned to, you need to let them fall away as you stand and look at the author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus Christ, and you need to bow your heart to him. You need to surrender your soul to him. Embrace him now as your Lord and Master so that one day when you stand before him, you can say, I have you, Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, listen, but don't, don't mistake this for a moment. This is for you too. You have the same temptations that every follower of Christ has. There's a temptation to lean into other things besides Christ. You're leaning on things today, and maybe some of you today need to release those to the Lord. You need to let go of them. You need to confess them for what they are, sin. Idols that you have long, that you've leaned into instead of leaning into God. And you need to make it the cry of your heart this morning. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me now. You need to make it the cry of your heart. And you need to pray as you sing this song. Please make this your prayer. Lord, give me Jesus. You can have all the world, all the world. Just give me Jesus. That's all I need. He's my portion.